From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR correspondents from around the globe. I'm Douglas Roberts. This week, treating children traumatized by the war in Syria, anarchists roiling the waters in Brazil, a fat tax in Mexico, a Chinese Sherlock Holmes, and women activists in Saudi Arabia defy a driving ban. In Syria, some two million children have been displaced by the war. More than half of them are now living in refugee camps outside the country. Many of these children have experienced horrific wartime trauma. NPR's Deborah Amos reports that one of the biggest challenges facing aid agencies is healing these emotional scars of war. Alexandra Chen, a specialist in childhood trauma, runs a workshop for a dozen teachers, coaches, and child psychologists in Nabatia in southern Lebanon. Okay, so Anna, I'm going to be crying, and you want to, you want to stop me, okay? The five-day course is run by Mercy Corps, based on skills developed in other conflict zones used for the first time here. The children have seen terrible things like bombings and people screaming and people dying, Mm. and they've smelled blood and smoke. Chen explains the science of trauma, why some children are unable to cope. For them to be connected to the world feels like a very dangerous thing. She says long-term exposure to violence can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, difficult to treat in adults, even harder to manage in kids. Think about the brain. Okay, let's draw it, actually. She explains to the group that trauma can change the brain. Children remain hyper-alert, angry and aggressive, often unable to sleep or feel emotion. Hippocampus, okay? Uh, A lot of them are are learning about the brain and are learning about what exactly profound stress means for the first time. Are all of them dealing with children? Um, Yes, all of them will be dealing with children, and by that I mean uh, from ages 5 to 18. This group has already seen signs of severe trauma in children recently arrived. Chen teaches them key skills to build a sense of safety. So if you're running after a child, because you will be running after many children, you want to try to get in front of the child and, and hold them. It feels dangerous if there's someone grabbing them from behind. But her newly trained team faces an overwhelming task. There are more than 85,000 refugees that have moved to this part of Lebanon, living in the poorest neighborhoods. Aid programs are underfunded and basic needs often go unmet. The newest arrivals have lived under horrific conditions for much longer, and many need immediate care. And international aid organizations are raising the alarm. The human memory remembers negative memories almost four times more strongly than positive memories. Alexandra Chen moves between workshops in Lebanon and refugee camps in Jordan to tackle the same problems. In Zatari, the sprawling camp in Jordan's desert near the Syrian border, children are often dangerously aggressive, punching or fighting in the open spaces between the refugee tents and trailers. It's how children behaved when they first came here, to a place called Dreamland. It's in the middle of the camp, 
a place where kids can feel secure. They play soccer or build sandcastles in the soft sand under a large tent that protects them from the sun. Chen says she's seen behavior change. There were some who were taking rocks and really, you know, hitting each other with them in a way that was very alarming. Acting aggressively in many ways is the mind's way of trying to make sense of what happened to them before. Now kids hammer on Legos in a nearby trailer. Some sit quietly to watch cartoons. The fact that they're able to sit there really for an hour of Tom and Jerry, that was quite remarkable. She says it's a sign of healing when a child can focus again. But for some... The terrible memories can return again and again. There was actually a little boy who would come 3 a.m. every morning. He would come and hide in the corner of Dreamland in, in the tent, and he would just sit there and shake and need to be alone. Um, and his parents weren't even aware. The stress that he was experiencing in his own little mind was too much. He was unable to sleep, and so this is where he came to find refuge. That alone is a small success. He found a safe place. Deborah Amos, NPR News. The massive protests that took place in Brazil over the summer are over now, but almost daily, smaller-scale demonstrations have continued, and they have become more violent. NPR's Lourdes Garcia Navarro reports from Sao Paulo on a shadowy global anarchist group called the Black Bloc, which has gained prominence in Brazil in recent months. The Black Bloc member won't tell us his name or anything about himself. To disguise his identity, he's wearing a black hoodie, a ski mask, and a bandana covering the lower half of his face. His eyes are even hidden by sunglasses. It's a dramatic outfit, but a necessary one, he explains. These security forces view the Black Bloc as a criminal organization that destroys property and fights with the police. He also asks to have his voice disguised. But he says far from being the perpetrators of violence, the Black Bloc is there to defend. He says the Black Bloc is necessary in Brazil because it's the way that the people found to fight back physically, to fight back the police. Police beat people up, he says. Police kill people. Police torture people nowadays in Brazil, he tells me. Over the summer, massive protests broke out in Brazil, sparked by a bloody police crackdown on peaceful protesters looking to lower the cost of public transport. This Black Bloc member and others NPR interviewed say they were inspired to join the anarchist group after seeing what happened on the streets. This isn't a new group. It was born in Germany in the 1970s, and its form of violent protest has been used all over the world since then, most recently in Egypt. But here in Brazil, the Black Bloc has grown exponentially, and it's become one of the major components of the protest movement here. The Black Bloc member says the group is fighting for a transformation in Brazilian society, and that appeals to many people fed up with what's happening here. Rafael Alcadipani is a professor at the Getulio Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo who studies the Black Bloc. He says the group is decentralized with no leadership and only a few unifying principles. But he says its tactics have won many young Brazilians over. Brazil is a very violent society, okay? So the language of violence is common in Brazilian society. And what's the novelty here is that they're using violence to demonstrate. They are offering an identity to some young people who have been disregarded by the government. 
a recent protest in Sao Paulo, the Black Bloc was indeed out in force. As frequently happens these days, the demonstrations devolved into violence, with masked anarchists battling with police and breaking into banks and stores. One of the members of the Bloc, a 19-year-old law student, explains why the banks are a particular target. Banks are one of the main evils of society. They are leeches, exploiting workers. For the bank, what matters most is the interest. It doesn't matter if people can't support their families. The banks are exploiters of society, and we are here to oppose them. But many regular protesters say the actions of the bloc overshadow their aims. This protest was over education, says 24-year-old Juniani Furno. It would be easier to gain public support by being able to talk to the governor. But instead, there are clashes, and all the media will say is that the black blocs broke everything and no one will discuss our legitimate complaints. Across town, the black bloc member we interviewed privately says the media is deliberately distorting what they do in an attempt to drive a wedge between the protesters. But he also adds, protesters who don't like the bloc's tactics should just stay home. He says some people actually are afraid of violence. They are afraid of being arrested. They are afraid of being there. But we don't need people with fear. If you are scared, stay at home, you know, he says. Because he says the black bloc is going to continue taking to the streets. He says the black bloc is the one telling the states you don't have the monopoly of force anymore because the people have the power. You can have the guns, but we have the power, he says. Lourdes Garcia Navarro, NPR News, Sao Paulo. Nearly a third of all Mexicans are obese. That puts Mexico at the top of the list of overweight nations, ahead of the United States. In the battle against the bulge, lawmakers there are taking aim at consumers' pocketbooks. They're proposing a series of new taxes on high-calorie food and sodas. Health advocates say the higher prices will get Mexicans to change bad habits. But the beverage industry and small businesses are fighting back, calling the taxes job killers, and a poorly timed blow to Mexico's struggling economy. NPR's Kerry Khan reports from Mexico City. This convenience store in a middle-class Mexico City neighborhood has been in Moises Orozco's family for more than 30 years. He says he's watched eating habits change over that time. Just look at his sales of gancitos, the spongy yellow cake akin to a Twinkie, filled with strawberry jelly and covered in a thin layer of chocolate. Before, we would sell at most 10 a week. Now, he says, easily sell six times that much. Some weeks, when he's well-stocked, as many as 150 gancitos. Orozco says if the government really wanted to combat obesity, it would have taxed sodas and junk food 10 years ago. He says politicians just want more money, so they go after small business owners like himself and the poor who buy the cheap junk food. Lawmakers are proposing a 10% tax on sodas, about a peso per liter, and a 5% increase on high-calorie snacks. Small business owners, the powerful beverage industry, and billionaire bottlers have launched an aggressive ad campaign against the proposal. They're running full-page ads in major newspapers, and some have focused in on the foreign influence of the taxes, especially the financial backing by U.S. billionaire Michael Bloomberg's philanthropic group. Cuauhtémoc Rivera, head of the National Association 
Association of Neighborhood Stores says the New York mayor should mind his own business. He says obesity in Mexico is more complicated than just drinking too many sodas. Rivera says Mexicans' whole diet is bad, filled with what he jokingly calls too much vitamin T. Tacos, tamales. Tacos, tamales, tortas, we eat everything that starts with a T. And he adds we don't move enough either. With the rise in the middle class here, Mexicans are exercising less and eating more fats and sweets. According to the World Health Organization, which has helped aid the pro-tax advocates, nearly 70 percent of Mexicans are now overweight. Diabetes is now one of the top killers in the country. Alejandro Calvillo of the group Consumer Power says Mexicans are the biggest consumers of soft drinks in the world, drinking about 40 gallons per person a year. He says a 10 percent tax per liter of soda will reduce consumption by as much as 12 percent. We need to act. We cannot permit that this situation uh, happen in Mexico for more time. Calvillo, whose group lobbied for a higher soda tax and does receive money from Bloomberg Philanthropies, says the new income should be used to encourage people to drink more water. Ruth Venegas says she's been trying to do just that, but as she walks out of a corner convenience store, she says it's really hard to break the soda habit. She opens her bag to show me a small Diet Coke. She said she used to buy the big ones before. Little by little, she'll succeed, she laughs. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Mexico City. Coming up, a renowned Chinese detective and women in Saudi Arabia get behind the wheel. This is Foreign Dispatch. I'm Douglas Roberts. Back in the 7th century AD, a celebrated Chinese investigator was cracking tough cases more than a thousand years before Sherlock Holmes even got a clue. Today, Judge D, a character based on that official, lives on in movies, operas, plays, and novels, as well as in a huge body of detective and crime literature. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has the story from Beijing. <laughs> In the latest movie from veteran Hong Kong director Choi Hak, a young man named Di Rinjie befriends a prison medic. He is amazed that Di seems to know everything about him, even though the two haven't previously met. Di explains that it's all about deduction. The first rule of sleuthing, Di tells the medic, is that you need a photographic memory. The second is that you need to closely observe people's speech and facial expressions. He doesn't mention it, but in his case, you also need top-notch kung fu skills to whoop the bad guys and deal with the occasional sea monster. I asked Choi about how he tries to portray Dee in his films. So we wanted to see how much we could exaggerate his persona, basing the story on the historical background while creating a heroic figure from our mind's eye. The real Judge Di actually served twice as prime minister during the Tang Dynasty under Empress Wu Zetian, the first woman to ever rule China. Zhang Guofeng is an expert on detective literature at People's University in Beijing. 
He says Dee is famous for having a close but rocky relationship with the Empress and for counseling her to scale back her ruthless political purges. The Empress was trying to consolidate her political power. She had many opponents. So she employed a lot of brutal officials who would extract confessions through torture and accuse people of plotting rebellions. But Judge Dee would often correct the miscarriages of justice she caused. Zhang says that stories about Judge Dee were passed down from generation to generation by oral storytellers, and they still are. Wang Fengchen is a young storyteller who performs both in traditional tea houses and on the radio. Here he performs for us a section from a story called "The Nail Murders." In this scene, Judge Dee orders a coroner to re-examine the body of a victim whose cause of death is not clear. Especially examine the deceased's skull and nostrils. Yes, sir. The coroner knew just what to do. He slid the forceps into the man's nostrils. He gently turned it when all of a sudden, ah, his forceps bumped into something. He delicately pulled out the object to examine. Ah, sir, look. What? What is it? The oral stories were not written into a novel until the 19th century. Whether it's an opera like this one, a TV drama, or a movie, all of them interpret and embellish Judge Dee's stories, adding to his legend. But Professor Zhang Guofeng cautions us that Dee is part of an ancient legal culture that's incompatible with any modern rule of law. Traditionally, China never had a distinct legal profession. The real Judge Dee was actually a county magistrate who functioned as detective, prosecutor, and judge all rolled into one. And when Dee couldn't get his suspects to confess, it was standard procedure to torture them until they did. The popularity of this kind of fiction shows that China still has a long way to go to achieve the rule of law. The idea of the upright official is not about relying on the law. In the end, it just represents a reliance on officials to solve problems. In other words, the hunger for justice that makes Judge D stories so popular. Won't be satisfied until heroes like Judge D are replaced with impersonal laws and institutions. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Beijing. Finally, we're going to hear more from NPR's Deborah Amos. She spent the past week in Saudi Arabia, where women activists are challenging the kingdom's driving ban. Some women have already made short drives, posting videos on a social media site. Saudi Arabia is the only country in the world that prohibits women from driving, a ban supported by conservative clerics. But so far, government authorities have been lenient with this small band of defiant female road warriors. Here is Deborah Amos in Riyadh. I feel like it, it's looking good. I think it is looking very good. They are mother and daughter, two generations working to overturn the ban. Thirty-two-year-old Sarah Hussein says it's time to claim the right to drive. Think back in history, Rosa Parks was the only person who sat down on the bus, wasn't she? And then it started to happen gradually. It does have to start with the few brave people who are willing to risk whatever there is to risk. 
Sarah's mother, Aziza Al Yusuf, is in her 50s. She's a key organizer of the drive-in, an academic. She teaches computer science at the university. Activists set a date, October 26, for a national road rally, but encourage women to just get behind the wheel any time. We're saying just go ahead and drive now. Are women starting to drive? I, I know women start driving. The messages are hundreds. We are counting the, the videotapes. The videotapes now over 60 or 70 videotapes we have. The videos come from across the kingdom, they say. There's one of, uh, I think, a Saudi man teaching either his sister or his wife how Both. to drive. Both. We have two tapes. One uh, teaching his uh, sister and the other one teaching his wife. Saudi Arabia is made for driving, with wide open spaces and cheap gas. The sprawling capital is as big as Los Angeles, but with no dependable public transportation. Women are dependent on male relatives or drivers, mostly an army of imported labor, expensive, and many women say an intrusion into their lives. The government is urging private companies to hire more women. It's hard to see how that can happen, says Sarah Hussein, unless women can drive to work. No one has been given orders from higher up saying that if you catch a woman in a car physically driving, then you have to detain her. Aziza El Yusuf believes it's a sign of tacit government approval. This campaign, she says, has learned from past mistakes. This is the third challenge to the driving ban. This time, there will be no gatherings or no protests. We don't want to break any law. The only law we want to break, banning driving. And you have a driver's license? Yes, I have international. For Aziza El Yusuf, it's time to drive. She invites me for a cruise around the capital. Okay, we're going to get in the front. Her driver climbs in the back. We take to the road. I need people to see that it is normal. No, you, we have to uh, let people accept it. It doesn't mean anything if you drive only one day. The afternoon traffic is so heavy that nobody notices two women in the front seat, one of them behind the wheel. Now in our right, you will see a police station. Let's see what their reaction. So you're going to drive right by the police station? Yes, this is it. You you watch it. It's going to be on your right. She says the head of the national police stated publicly his officers would not arrest women for driving, but would ticket those without a license, which is impossible for a woman to get here. Aziza El Yusuf drives like a pro. The only time she shows excitement is when another activist calls her. I am driving. Yep. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay. There's no ban on using cell phones in the car. We end our drive at her front door. Her husband is there to meet her. My husband. Hello, I'm a coward. How do you do? Mohsen El Haider says he's given up driving. He's proud of his wife braving Riyadh's daunting traffic. He supports her driving campaign, but he's worried too. There have been online attacks against activists. This week, conservative clerics urged the king to stop Saturday's drive in. Aziza El Yusuf sweeps away her husband's concerns and sits down to check the driving videos filed today. She said this is a very positive movement. Saudi lady should have the choice to drive her own car. And she named the tape that, yes, we can. If they can is up to King Abdullah, who has said he believes women have the right to drive, but he hasn't said when.
Deborah Amos, NPR News, Riyadh. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Douglas Roberts. Thank you.